Hello, everyone. Thank you for checking out this episode of Really Dicey. This is Manny. I'm here with RJ. And today we're going to talk about Dune, um, Adventures in the Imperium uh, by Modifius Entertainment. Um, this is now available on PDF, and the uh, print copy will be available, at least on the website, they say May 14th. Let's hope so. Um, so yes, this is based on the really popular epic sci-fi uh, uh, Dune series uh, written by Frank uh, Herbert in the 20th century. And it's um, um, there's been a movie, there's been a, a miniseries on um, Sci-Fi Channel, and now there's a new movie coming out in 2021. And um, being now that Dune is back in 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 the in the mainstream again, um, Modifius Entertainment is putting out a book to so that anyone that's a either fan of the uh, of the books or fan of the of the 1980s movie or even fan of the 2021 movie can now go ahead and continue their adventures at home. There are 10 chapters, an appendix. This is about 330 pages. Um, the art for this is beautiful, uh, very well done. And um, right now we're just gonna go over each chapter and kind of talk about the book. Chapter one, titled Introduction, um, gives you the overview of the book and what you're expected to find in each chapter. This chapter talks about the dice that you need and tells readers who are familiar with the 2D20 system what has changed rules-wise. It also gives you the basic overview of the Dune universe, including five eras in its long history, including the most popular time where the first Dune novel uh, takes place. Any thoughts about that, RJ? Yeah, and this chapter also introduces us to uh, two levels of play, which are architect level and agent level. So architect level is you're using your assets to at a distance to achieve your objectives, whereas agent level play is more direct hands-on play, which is more common in traditional heroic role-playing games. I think this is a, a good help as well to get familiar with the Dune universe. I mean, the the, the lore is pretty heavy and I, I think they did a good job in not just not giving it all at once, but by piecemeal, if that makes sense, which kind of preps you for chapter two, uh, the known universe. Um, that that chapter is about almost one fifth of the book. Well, Diffius has a, does a really good job and, and giving you so much detail, it almost feels like this is the uh, more of a source book of the novels than, than than an actual role-playing game. And this chapter is really great if you've never read all of the Dune novels. Um, so, and in fact, it's necessary for you to understand the full universe. If you, like me, you haven't read all of them. Uh, so it gives you basically a Cliff Notes version of the Dune saga across all of the novels and in descriptions of the major powers and planets and schools and an overview of technology, religion, social structure, even the corporate structure within Choem, if I'm saying that correctly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and it does let the reader know that, um, that if you are familiar with Dune, this takes place, um, I mean, this uses all, uh, all of Frank Herbert's books, also uses all the material from his son's books as well, and, um, and his work with Kevin J. Anderson. Chapter three gives you some options to create your own house, uh, including house type, what domain is your house most famous for, and the chapter gives you a list of expertise to choose from, like espionage and farming. Uh, it talks about creating your homeworld, banners, what roles your players and non-player characters have within the house, including advisor, marshal, spy master, and sword master, as, as an example. Um, and most important of all, in my opinion, a section about enemies, including, cre including creating houses uh, who hate you and the reasons why. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, this chapter was interesting because it comes before character creation. 
And so the first thing you do is you create your house. That comes before the character creation. And the house is going to determine what kind of adventures the game is going to have and what kind of characters are going to be available to play. And the house has its own house sheet. Like you have a character sheet, a house has its own house sheet. Um, the group of players and the game master together are going to decide what house to play because that's going to define pretty much the campaign. And yeah, like you mentioned, there are different house types, basically power levels and domains, which is what's their chief economic contributor. What are they um, specialized in? Your home world and banners and arms, you get to set that all up. The power level of the house you choose to play will determine how much threat the game master can bring to bear against you. So you may not want to have a great house. You may want to have a minor house or a nascent house instead. Yeah, you could tell that the game wants to set up um, backstory. Backstory is very important. It's actually pretty much it's crucial um, because, um, well, one, you have to make this first before you make your character. And it also helps develop the setting for your character and what your function is in the house that you're, you're in. Yeah, and the house that you select when you create the house, you also select its traits. And those traits are basically put directly onto your character when we get to character creation as well. And speaking of character creation, chapter four deals with that. Um, if you're familiar with Modifius's other role-playing books like Star Trek Adventures, uh, it's very similar, where your characters have both traits, skills, and focuses. Just like Star Trek Adventures, this also has similar ladder for character creation, such as step one concept. Who do you want to be? A uh, Freeman, uh, a Bene Gesserit sister, or a Mentat? Um, step two archetype. Who do you do you want to be a spy? Do you want to be a smuggler? Do you want to be an empath? Step three, skills and step four focuses. Yeah, and there's two ways to create characters in this game. One is the traditional way where you sit down with a character sheet and you walk through some process. The other way is that you can create your character as you start playing. So you start off with a very minimal set of character choices, then you start playing immediately. And then at certain points during that play, you get to make additional choices to further flesh out your character. And the qualities of characters, like you mentioned, you have traits and skills and drives. Now, what's interesting is that drives are like the motivations. So it's like duty, faith, justice, power, truth. Those are your drives and you have to assign rankings to them. And those rankings, which are your character's motivations, are mechanically important to the game. Step five, uh, talents helps make uh, give you special abilities. Uh, step six, drives. You just explained it. And uh, step seven, assets. Uh, they help uh, helps helps you choose the tools and the resources um, that you start with. Step eight, finishing touches. Your name, uh, personality, what you look like, and so forth. There are 20 archetypes, which are similar to classes in the game. So there are things like um, a commander, a courtier, an empath, uh, a smuggler, a spy, a warrior. So there are 20 to choose from there. And there are templates that you can use to help you pick the archetype. Like I want to play this sort of character. So it'll say, okay, select this archetype. But you can also just jump into one of those 20 archetypes directly five rules <laughs> um you don't need any other dice besides d20s um for skill tests basically when you and the game master have a scene and you both decide on the skill and drive associate to what you need to accomplish you add the skill and drive together to become your target number and you and you want to roll the d the 2d20s um to roll under 
that target number to be successful. And if you score a one, it counts as two successes. Um, the rules go on to, to talk about when, um, when to roll um, during a scene, um, difficulty and threat and how they affect those roles. Uh, for example, rolling a natural 20 causes complications uh, and you don't want that. Um, I think that might be the most, for new players and, and new gamers, that might be the trickiest thing to, to get used to because we're so used to um, 20s or anything higher being critical. And for this game, it's the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, and each skill and drive, which are creating that target number, um, varies between a four and an eight. So on any skill, a character will have either a four, five, six, seven, or eight. And same thing with drives, all four to eight. So the target numbers that you're rolling, trying to roll under, are anywhere between eight to 16, an average of a 12. So normally you're trying to roll basically a 12 or less on a, on each individual D20. Um, that's pretty good odds. Uh, that means you have a 60% chance normally of success, of getting a success on a dice. Um, and the full range is actually 40% at your lowest of getting a success to 80%. So that's really shifted in, um, in favor of the player succeeding. Yeah. And if you get um, more successes that you need uh, for that scene, you can use that to store momentum. And um, momentum is a, a great tool for players. It helps them get out of trouble or, in, or if they're in tough situations. Um, and uh, you can use it to um, um, if you want to like uh, buy extra dice, um, or you can use it to for role playing purposes. You can try to get more information or get, get a chance to ask another question, for example, uh, from an NPC that you're trying to get information out of, or maybe another favor. Yeah, I really like this style of play. It's a narrative style of play where the players are participating in the world building or the scene building. Um, so yeah, you're spending something in order to say, okay, in this scene, there's also this other thing. You're, you're, you're adding to the improv. Um, so you can either create an asset right there by spending some uh, momentum, or you can uh, change something in the scene into mm -hmm. your favor. The thing about momentum is also you want to spend it quickly because it starts to fade away as time after a scene ends, you immediately lose a, a momentum from the pool. The pool is capped at six, so yeah. um, it's not like you, you can bank a whole lot. And and threats work the opposite way as well. You know, um, you know, if you again complications cause a lot of problems, and with threats, you could you could just make the it's very similar to seven C, where you can make things harder for the players. Their their rules might be be. A, maybe uh, affected and we may have to um, or the, the scene can become more complicated so you need more successes than normal in that in that scene um, but uh, but yeah that's that's I love that too yeah so determination uh, you can only use it when your character's drive is applicable to the test so if you're doing something and because you're doing you're doing it because of one of your drives that's very high like this is truth seeking and I, I have a very high drive for truth, um, then I can use determination. I can spend one determination to change one of the dice I rolled to a natural one, which is a double or critical success, I guess. Or I could spend that one determination to reroll all the dice that I just rolled. Chapter six, conflict. Pretty much this chapter is sort of an extension of chapter five. There's 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 additional rules. Um, uh, we discuss things like, like how initiative works, types of action. Um, uh, defeats and recovery. Um, this chapter emphasizes the five types of combat you'll find in this game, dueling, skirmish, warfare, espionage, and intrigue. 
uh, each have their own set of style, which you want to learn if you want this game to feel like Doom. What I found interesting about this chapter was the fact that turns take place in rounds, like they do in almost every other game, but the turns actually don't go in some sort of initiative order. Rather, they alternate between sides. So there's assuming that you have two sides that are in conflict. And so one side gets to go and they get to pick which of the, the characters in the scene goes for them. Then the next side gets to go, they get to pick which character in the scene goes for them at that point. And you keep going back and forth. But there's also a mechanic where you can say, after my side goes with this character, I want to keep the initiative by spending some momentum and have another character on my side go next, uh, which is a cool little initiative bending um, mechanic. Chapter seven, assets. Uh, assets deal with not just equipment, but also resources. Uh, there are rules here for creating assets and how to advance them, which I think is really awesome. Um, so weapons, communications, and other tools are listed in this chapter, as well as transports and, and agents. So assets, tangible assets, we all understand. Those are objects. They could be weapons or armor or items. But intangible assets are also listed here. Um, so these are things like contacts or favors that are owed. And there's a list of assets, and they each have a quality rating as well. Um, there's a list of assets. So you have your personal assets, what we would expect from an equipment list. Um, you also have your warfare assets, and these are things like transports and soldiers and artillery and shields. You have your espionage assets. These are things like weapons, like hunter seeker, uh, or communication things like some intelligence, a map, um, and contacts and agents. And then finally, you have your intrigue assets. And these are things like favors, like there's a debtor who owes you some money, or valuables like land rights or raw materials, blackmail, contacts, or courtiers who are in the Imperial Court. Chapter eight, Game Mastering. Um, I know advanced game masters tend to skip those chapters, but I, 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 I would, would ask them to definitely take a special look at this, especially, again, because Dune is not any science fiction setting that you can really, uh, I wouldn't call it generic. It has a very special flavor to it. Um, uh, one would say maybe a little spicy, and that's a terrible pun. I am sorry for that. I am terribly sorry. Um, but uh, the, this section uh, this section gives you tools for, for those that are new to role-playing games, which is great, um, as well as they give uh, advice to get advanced game masters about how to make this game feel like you're, you're, you're actually continuing the, the Dune saga. Yeah, there were three sections in the game mastering chapter that really stood out to me. One is because the Dune universe and subject matter is extremely um, heavy, um, there is a lot more description around getting players to be comfortable or to signal and communicate about how comfortable they are with the subject being discussed. Um, so there's a few options given as to how to do okay check-ins or how people can signal when they need to take a break or if something's getting too close to uh, their limits. Another section which really stood out to me is how to move between architect level play and agent level play, um, because that is something that is a bit unique for this game. And then finally, there's a whole page on how to deal with prescience. When people can see the future, what does that mean? Do your players have choices that they're going to make? What if they don't turn out how it was predicted? So there's a whole, a whole page 
uh, describing how to deal with this problem. Chapter nine, allies and adversaries. Uh, I love chapters like this where they have a bunch of NPCs uh, that uh, game masters can use. And I love it when they're, these NPCs are like uh, characters from the books or from the movies. Um, so you get a, a whole uh, listing about that. You also get um, information about the houses, uh, which is great. Besides the, um, the most popular characters being made into NPCs, uh, they also give you like, I guess you could say basic archetypes for for um, if you want to make certain NPCs like on the fly, like a like a smuggler uh, or a spy master or anything like that. So there's 25 of those um, sort of generic archetypes, um, and they're pretty useful. And it, that's enough examples to to give a game master an idea of how to make their own. Um, and then there's the rival houses section, and where they give you five generic rival houses um, that you can use to be enemies or allies of your um, player's house and suggestions on how to use them as each, um, resources and domains, adventure hooks for how to how to include those rival houses in your story. So for example, um, two of them are military house and espionage house, right? Those are the two that are probably the ones that come to mind first. And uh, last but not least, chapter 10, Harvesters of Dune, an adventure at the end uh, so that you can either um, uh, play it right away, uh, or you can use it as a, as a template so you know how the adventures are constructed in this game. Um, uh, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there's three acts. Um, this this section is about 12 or so pages. It takes place in the right before the beginning of the first novel of Dune. Yeah, so this is an agent level adventure, right? Not an architect level, and it's very, very Dune like. So yes, it's on Arrakis, it's in the desert, it's related to spice harvesting. So it should be very familiar to people who want to play a Dune sort of setting, especially if you've just seen the movie and you want to sit down and play something like that. So the appendix has, of course, the house sheet, the character sheet, but it also has uh, useful rule summaries. Um, so you can use them for quick reference. And that's actually, for me, slightly easier than reading through the rules chapters, because <laughs> mm. it's a very quick summary of how everything works. Um, so in lieu of having a Game Master screen, which is sold separately, uh, you can maybe print off or copy just a few of these sheets and have them sitting there. In conclusion, um, uh, this is a very well done book. Uh, again, the art's beautiful. There's, there's so much information. This is this game is a very heavy political type of game. It's not a, I, I can't see this being like, like uh, heavy on action like the way a, a normal D&D session would be. This is a game that if you want to you have a, you have the right players that want that are familiar with Dune and they're they're um they, they want to do a lot of intrigue and espionage type of things and uh play like a like almost like a, a chess game with other players. Oh yeah, then this game is definitely for you. Um especially also if you're a fan of Dune, uh I think you would you would like this book. Even if you never played the book, Modifius has this does this thing with their books where they just do such a good job in, in collecting the lore that I, I would just collect this, I would just have this in my bookshelf and bring it out whenever I want to, you know, like uh, uh, just read about Dune. I think that this is probably the best way that Dune can be presented as an RPG. Um, it's a very niche genre though, and it's pretty unlikely that you have an entire group of friends who want to play it. Um, I probably won't play this game, but I think it's also a great way, the book is a great way to understand the larger Dune story uh, without having to read all of those books. The rule system is fairly complex um, and it's got quite a few moving parts. There's things like challenging drives. So if a player says this is the drive that's 
my motivation and the game master challenges them. There is uh, mechanics around that and uh, rewards around that. Um, tracking threat, determination, momentum. And it's also very abstract about this idea of assets and conflict and zones within a conflict. Uh, it's very abstract. Um, I like the way that character motivations are mechanized into the rules, which should lead to more character-driven play. And I like that players are empowered to buy the rules, to modify and embellish the scene. Um, this is a narrative style play technique. And failure as complications, that is also a narrative style play technique, which uh, is challenging for people who are used to a hack and slash style or tactical style game, but it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm not sure how architect level play can be satisfying to a group of players. That's something I haven't seen demonstrated. The sample adventure is not architect level. So that is sort of an unknown um, for, for me. And, but I do appreciate that the social interactions that you have in a role-playing game are actually governed by mechanical rules. So players don't have to rely on their own speaking skills to succeed in these types of scenes. Um, that allows for, in my, my view, that allows for more neurodiversity in the player, player group, um, which sometimes you have people who are very reserved and shy and have, are not um, able to uh, participate in the same way as other people. Um, so this gives people a way to have a character that has social interaction skills that they themselves may not have. Uh, I hope they would, they'll come out eventually with maybe a beginner's box set. I think that might help um, so that you're right that there's not, I, I would, I would be very cautious about doing a, an architect mission. Uh, I will have to do a lot of preparation so that I could be very successful with that. Yeah, but this book is beautiful. Um, and there are collector's editions too with special covers. The art is super immersive, it really sets the mood and the graphic design and layout are really top notch. It's a really beautiful book. Yeah, it's great. I, I'd be very happy to have this in my collection. That's because the, just for the art alone, it's fantastic. Uh, and then also for the uh, the lore that they have in there. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but yes, uh, do you have a copy? Um, uh, let us know what you think of the book. So um, thank you very much for watching. Take care and have a good day. Mm -hmm.